Amen. You can be seated. Joy to the world. May the joy of our Savior be proclaimed to all the world. May His blessings be known as far as the curse is found. Let's pray together again. Lord, we do pray that our joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy that this is the day You have made, that this joy would be spread from us to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family and friends, and indeed to the ends of the earth. Help us to be joyful people, joyful because we know all of Your promises are true. We know all of these blessings are true. They are ours because of Jesus. So Lord, I pray now that You would open Your Word to us, that You would help us to see wondrous things in Your Word, that we might fall more in love with You, that we might be more in tune to what You're doing, to Your Spirit, that You might be more seen, more glorified, more savored by us and by those around us. God, thank You for this gathering. Thank You that we get the opportunity to be with each other in Your presence, singing Your praises, hearing Your Word, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. What a joy. What a blessing to be here in this moment. And we need you now. We pray you'd help us in every way that you want to help us, in every way that you desire to help us, to grow us, to mature us. We ask you for that help in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is so good to be together on this, the day the Lord has made, and it is so good to study God's Word together in community. And so for the last time in 2023, turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. If you're new to our church, way back at the beginning of January, we started a passage-by-passage study of the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. And we've had about 40 sermons in the book of Romans this year. The plan is to conclude Romans 11 this morning, and then we'll have some Christmas-focused sermons over the next few weeks to help us celebrate our incarnate Savior, and then we'll dive into Romans 12-16 through in January and concluding, God willing, sometime around May, depending on how it all falls. And can I just say as a teaser, I've been working ahead in Romans 12-16 through And I am so eager for us to study together these extremely practical chapters. I think we, myself included, need to apply the gospel more consistently in our everyday lives. And Paul helps us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in some really specific ways in chapters 12 through 16. And so, just as Paul has painstakingly plumbed the depths of the theology of our salvation and our sanctification in chapters 1 through 11, so he goes radically deep into the difference the gospel should make in our day to day lives and in our relationships in chapters 12 through 16. And so, so much to look forward to beginning in the new year, but this morning, We have Paul's conclusion to this theological section of the book of Romans. Paul, as you can see just from glancing your eyes over these verses, Paul breaks out into doxology in response to the awesome character of God. Here's the overarching truth of this doxology. True theology should always result 
in heartfelt doxology. True theology should always result in heartfelt doxology. And so follow along as I read Romans 11, verses 33 through 36 over us. Paul says, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is the truth of our God. May He weave it into the fabric of our souls. So here's how Paul ends this, these first 11 awesome chapters. Notice how he ends it. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, amen is a statement of certainty. It's an affirmation that what has just been said is true and lovely. And I think Paul is saying this amen over all 11 chapters, specifically over what he's just said in chapters 9 through 11. It's an affirmation that this is true, this is lovely, this is beautiful. You see, we say amen at the end of our prayers not just to say, bye, we're done now. And we say amen to say, this is true. You can do this, God. We believe it. Paul uses this affirmation, amen, at least five times in the book of Romans. And each time it follows a statement of the character and the glory of our God. In chapter 1, God is blessed forever. Amen. In chapter 9, Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In chapter 15, He is the God of peace who is with us. Amen. In chapter 16, He's the only wise God forever through Jesus Christ. And the entire book of Romans ends with the word, Amen. And here in the middle of the book, chapter 11, to Him be glory forever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. To Him be glory forever. This was one of the five solas of the Reformation. Glory to God alone. Indeed, this is the heartbeat of the Reformation. It's the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Glory to God alone. More than anything in all of creation, more than anything in all of the world, this is what we want. We want to see God worshipped and known and treasured as the glorious God that He is. To Him be glory forever. Amen. The word glory is associated in the Bible with the word weight. Like a heavy weight. This idea is closely connected with the idea of to value something because a coin or a metal image would be valued based on how much it weighed. The more it weighed, 
the more valuable it was. And so when the Scriptures speak of the weight of God, the glory of God, it's speaking of His inherent value. It's talking about God's extreme worth. This exclamation of worship, to Him be glory forever, is saying, may God be seen as weighty and valuable forever and ever and ever. May God be treasured as the greatest value in all of creation. And this, friends, this church family is the ultimate cry of our hearts. It is why we were created. And it is why we are justified for the glory of God forever. Amen. And in this doxology, in this epic doxology, Paul gives massive reasons why God deserves glory forever and ever. These truths about how awesome and supreme our God is causes Paul to break out into doxology. And so what I want to do is just meditate on the truths about God in this doxology that causes Paul to worship and say, to Him be glory forever. Amen. I want to highlight four truths about why God deserves endless glory from every person in all times and all places. Four truths about God that scream to us why He deserves all of the glory from us and from everybody in all creation. And There is nothing, there is nothing I would rather declare this morning than the glory of our God. Number one, glory to God forever because God is infinitely rich, wise, and knowledgeable. Glory to God forever because God is infinitely rich, He is infinitely wise, and He is infinitely knowledgeable. Look at verse 33 again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So as Paul contemplates the grand plan of God to save Jews and Gentiles through the cross of Jesus Christ, all he can do is exclaim, Oh! This is the O of worship. This O is equivalent to our wow. This is the sound you make when there are no words to describe the awe and the wonder that you feel about something. Listen, friends, God will not be merely analyzed or debated. He will be worshipped. And Paul cannot keep quiet when he finishes this explanation of the righteousness of God in the Gospel through chapters 1-11. through Oh, what wonder. Oh, what depth. Oh, what riches. Oh, what wisdom. Oh, what knowledge. Friends, does your study of God lead you to this? Oh, do you leave the gathered worship of God on Sunday with this great oh in your heart? When you encounter the truth of who God is and what He's promised to be for you, do you merely just analyze it and think of more questions? Or do you pause to say, Wow. Notice what wows Paul. What is it that wows him? Just look at the first three words of verse 33. Oh, the depth. Oh, how deep. It is 
massive depth that amazes the apostle. It's not just one truth about God on the surface of things that draws this. Oh, it is the depth of the character and the plan of God that draws this worship from his heart. And so I'm using the word infinite to try to capture the depth that Paul sees. This depth means that God is infinite. This is, this is depth without end. Infinite depth. Infinite glories. This is so deep. What Paul sees is so deep that he cannot even begin to get to the bottom of it. It is a bottomless cavern of glory. I'm told that the deepest man-made hole on earth is in Russia. And it's called the Kola Superdeep Borehole. It took engineers 24 years to drill it, and it is over 40,000 feet deep, which is deeper than the deepest part of the known ocean. It's not big enough for a person to fall through it, but if you could fall into this super deep borehole, it would take five minutes of falling to reach the bottom. And yet, that super deep borehole is just a fraction of the way through the earth's core. Indeed, that 40,000 feet is just a tiny pothole compared to the depth of the universe. In light of our smallness, who can begin to actually understand real depth? Infinite depth. Paul says, oh, the depth. And it's specifically the depth of three aspects of God's character that Paul is contemplating here. The depth of his riches, the depth of his wisdom, and the depth of his knowledge. Riches here speaks, I think, not just of wealth of God's possessions. Yes, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing God does not own. But I think Paul is specifically thinking of the riches of God's kindness. Remember, Paul has just finished speaking of God's kindness to Jews and God's kindness to Gentiles. Indeed, His kindness to all peoples. God lavishes His rich favor on His people and His favor is never ending toward us. It is infinite favor. His kindness washes over us continually like a waterfall that never ends. Indeed, the riches of His kindness are infinitely deep. Wisdom speaks of God's infinite ability and awesome ability to always know the right course of action. Think about it. God always knows how to accomplish His will. He is never wringing His hands in anxiety, wondering how He's going to fix the mess we've made. He never stresses over a decision like you and I do because He has infinite wisdom. The rich wisdom of God the deep wisdom of God makes the wisest man on this earth look like a wisdomless toddler. God's wisdom is literally infinite. There is no end to the depth of His wisdom. But also God is deep in knowledge. This is a reference to God's omniscience. He is all-knowing. 
There's nothing past, present, or future that God does not know. He knows everything ever done, everything ever written, everything ever said, everything ever thought. He knows what will be done, what will be said, what will be written, what will be thought. God's vast knowledge, His infinite knowledge, makes all the information on the entire internet look like a six-page kid's board book. Our God is deep in His riches, in His wisdom, and in His knowledge. He is an inexhaustible treasure to whom belongs glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Second truth about the glory of God is glory to God forever because God is greater than we can comprehend. Glory to God forever because God is greater than we can comprehend. Now, this is obvious from what we just said about the infinite depth of God. But obvious truths are worth saying and worth rejoicing in. In verse 33, Paul says, I think in response to the depth he sees and he is celebrating, he says, notice, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is incomprehensible. His ways, his judgments, his plan, his character are incomprehensible. The word inscrutable in verse 33 means impossible to interpret. Unfathomable is what this means. You see, the moment we think we have God all figured out is the moment we should realize we are wrong. This should be expected, right? Like, who would not expect this? God is God and we are not. Like, why would you ever worship a God who could be fully understood by His creatures? That would be a small God. Now, when we say God is incomprehensible, we're not saying God can't be known at all. No, we're saying He cannot be known fully, but He can be known accurately because He has revealed Himself in His Word. You see, we are not agnostics. When we say God is incomprehensible, we're not saying we're agnostic. We're not saying God can't be known at all. The Bible definitively declares that we can know who God is. He is a knowable God who has revealed Himself. He's told us everything we need to know about Him so that we can understand Him truthfully, just not exhaustively. We can understand Him truthfully, just not exhaustively. And this should cause us, I think, to marvel. It should cause us to wonder at how awesome He is in His judgments that are unsearchable by us. His ways are inscrutable. They are unfathomable to us. His purposes, His thoughts are far beyond our ability to understand. And so we have to be fine with mystery. We have to be fine with limited knowledge. We have to be fine if we can't figure it all out. We have to be fine with it, but not only fine with it, but we have to allow that to lead us to this great O of worship, to lead us to a life of awe and wonder that this unfathomable God this God who is unsearchable in His judgments and in His ways. Now remember Paul is saying this in response to some really tough teaching. He's saying this in response to God's foreknowledge and predestination and election of His people. He's saying this in response to God's ongoing plan for Israel to be jealous of the Gentiles' inclusion. And he's saying this in response to how God's righteous character is manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are some hard truths, and there are a lot of hard truths in Scripture. 
We should apply ourselves to seek to understand them to the best of our ability, but at the end of the day, we make this declaration. How unsearchable are your judgments, God. How inscrutable are your ways. To him be glory forever because he is greater than we can comprehend. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Third truth. Glory to God forever because God is totally self-sufficient. Glory to Him forever because He is totally self-sufficient. Now, to be self-sufficient means you're not dependent on anyone else. God has no need of anything or anyone outside of Himself. This is communicated in verses 34 and 35 with these rhetorical questions that Paul quotes from the Old Testament. These quotes are from Isaiah and Job. Notice how Paul utilizes these questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? So notice carefully the structure of these questions. Each of these questions corresponds to the depth of God's character in verse 33. So Paul mentioned the depth of God's riches, God's wisdom, and God's knowledge. Well, here are three rhetorical questions. Paul reverses that order. The first question is about God's knowledge. The second question is about God's wisdom. And the third question is about God's riches. So the first question is about God's knowledge. He asks, who has known the mind of the Lord? We've already answered that question, right? No one. God is incomprehensible. His knowledge is limitless. His knowledge is infinite. He doesn't need to look anything up on the internet or in the Library of Congress. He knows everything that is, and no one even comes close to knowing His mind. The second question is about God's wisdom. Who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. God is not in need of anyone to give him counsel. No one can advise God on the best course of action. No one can come to God with suggestions about how to govern the world more efficiently. Think of the wisest counselor in the world. What if there was a contest to see who was the wisest counselor in the entire world. Someone who could counsel you in any situation that you find yourself in. And yet, even if we could find that one person who's the wisest person in all of the world, that person's wisdom cannot even compare to God's wisdom. We need counsel. God does not. He is totally self-sufficient in His wisdom. The third question is about God's riches. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Answer, no one is that rich. God is without counselors and he is without debtors. No one has ever given anything that puts God in an obligation to repay him. Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon and countless other businesses, could give away all the money he has, and not only all the money he has, but all the potential earnings of all the money that he has, and he still would not be in, God still would not be in his debt. You and I can never put God in our debt because God is infinitely rich. Indeed, anything we could give to God was already given to us by him anyway. God never owes anyone anything. 
Now, this is so significant because we all know that people can be bribed. They can be put in our debt so that they have to do us favors. We've all seen those movies where the bad guys get someone who they knew from a previous time to do some of their dirty work because that person was in their debt. But no one can put God in their debt. He cannot be bribed and he cannot be bought. He is completely self-sufficient. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has counseled God. And no one has given him anything that puts him in their debt. And because God is self-sufficient, Paul says, he deserves all glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. Fourth and finally, glory to God forever because God is the source, means, and goal of all things. Glory to God forever because God is the source, the means, and the goal of all things. And so, listen, for verse 36 is one of those verses that we could study every Sunday for a lifetime and not scratch the surface of. What Paul says about God here in verse 36 is the definition of epic. Here is the reason no one can counsel God. Here's the reason no one can put God in their debt. Notice four are because all things are from and through and to God. Notice the prepositions in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things are from and through and to our God. From Him speaks to the fact that He's the source of everything that is. Everything is from God. Think about that. You have nothing that is not from God. Amen. You have nothing. Any, everything you have, physical and spiritual, is from God. It originates from Him. He is the source of it. Also, everything is through Him. This speaks of God as the means by which everything is. He's the sustainer. He's the upholder of all that is. He's the author and the agent through whom all things exist. Also, everything is to Him, which means God is the goal of everything that exists. He's the aim. He's the purpose of everything in all of life. Which means, friends, if you don't love and worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are missing out on why you exist. The very purpose for which you were made is being completely undermined. Students, you don't exist merely to get good grades and play sports. Middle-aged adults, you don't exist merely to make a good income and save some for retirement. Senior saints, you don't exist merely to hold on as long as you can. Your life, your everything exists for the glory of the one true God. And if you aim at anything else, you waste your life. If you aim at any other goal, it is completely wasted. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Colossians 1 says this about the Lord Jesus. It says, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now this is obvious about creation, right? You look around at creation, physical creation is from and through and to God. But what about your salvation? 
which is the context of what Paul has been explaining here in Romans 9-11. through Jew or Gentile, your salvation is from and through and to God. You didn't save yourself. You aren't the author or the agent or the aim of your salvation. God is. What about the details of your personal life? What about the details of your day-to-day life? Your job, your family, your hobbies, your free time. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. He's the source, He's the means, and He is the goal of it all. Therefore, Paul says, all glory be to God forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Before we move to the Lord's Supper, let me highlight a few thoughts of application for us. I think that the glory of God is the most practical reality in all the world. When you see and know and taste the glory of God, it is extremely useful for everyday life. But let me put some edges on a few ways we can begin applying the glory of God to our life. Number one, fight sin by tasting the glory of God. Fight sin by tasting the glory of God. Indwelling sin in all of our lives is extremely powerful. Our flesh is ugly and it is capable of leading us to do some despicable things. And friends, the way to fight sin is by tasting a sweeter pleasure. I'm sure you're like me and you have tried in vain to resist temptation in your own willpower. You can create all kinds of barriers and rules and accountabilities and you know what your flesh will do? It'll just step right over those boundaries because it is so powerful. But what is more powerful? What can help us fight sin and resist temptation? Well, it comes from knowing and loving and tasting the glory of our God. This oh, this oh, the depth of worship will suffocate sin in our hearts. It's one of the reasons why gathering on Sunday morning with your brothers and sisters is so important because the goal is to see how beautiful God is and the stuff of our dreams, the stuff of our hearts finds itself pushed to the edges and outside and finds it being uprooted by seeing and knowing and enjoying the glory of God. When we set our eyes on greatness, on grandeur, the pleasures of sin lose their flavor. Knowing God is infinitely rich and wise and knowledgeable has the power to free us from our lust and from our greed and from our selfishness and from our materialism like nothing else can. Fight sin by meditating on the incomprehensibility of God and the self-sufficiency of God and the depth of His infinite wisdom and riches and knowledge. The fact that He's the source and goal and means of everything in all of creation. Fight sin by tasting the glory of God. Secondly, second application, engage in missions for the glory of God. Engage in missions for the glory of God. So friends, here's the most 
ultimate motivation for personal evangelism and for global missions. The glory of God forever. Amen. The ultimate reason we should care that the gospel be spread far and wide, that we support God's global purpose is because God deserves glory from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. We learn from the book of Romans, particularly from chapter 15, that one of the reasons Paul wrote the entire book of Romans was to help the Christians in Rome catch a vision for supporting the mission of the gospel being spread. He wrote this theological letter in order to inspire, in order to fuel the cause of the Great Commission in these Christians. And so the reason this doxology even exists is to draw our hearts to love and taste and savor the glory of God so that we would then devote ourselves wholeheartedly to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? How beautiful are the feet of Him who preaches good news. We should devote ourselves to seeing that the glory of God in the Gospel is seen by all peoples in all nations. But friends, not every Christian is called to pack up their lives and go to the unreached people groups of the world. Some are called to go. I pray in this very room, God will be raising up people who would take that Gospel to the ends of the earth. But friends, all of us are called to pray and give to support God's global purpose to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. And so one way that I just want to challenge us in response to the book of Romans, particularly at the end of this theological section where we've been Sunday after Sunday after Sunday seeing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the one way I want to challenge you is engage in the mission of God engaged in global missions. Particularly, I'd like to challenge every member of Miller Heights Baptist Church to give something to support the spread of the gospel among the nations through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. The International Mission Board is not the only mission sending agency. It's not the, it, it's, there's, there's tons of other ones. I'm thankful for those that we support. But as a church, we've decided to support the International Mission Board, and come together with other like-minded churches to see the gospel, to see the gospel spread, to see churches planted, to see missionaries supported and encouraged to translate the Bible into other languages, to reach people who have never been reached before. So I challenge every single member, every single family of our church, give something this Christmas, something this December, to say, God, I'm with, I'm with this mission. I want to be engaged in this global purpose. For some, that might be a lot of money that you need to give. For others, it might not seem like it's a lot, but I encourage us all to give something to engage in missions for the glory of God. It's not all we should do. Please hear me. It's not all we should do, but certainly we shouldn't do less than giving sacrificially and generously to see the gospel spread. We give not to put God in our debt. That would be impossible. We give because we are in awe of this great God who deserves all glory from all peoples forever and ever. Amen. Third and finally, be amazed by the gospel. Be amazed by the gospel. Because the place we see the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God most clearly are at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Jesus' death, we could not know and see and delight in the gospel of the glory of God. We would be blind to His glory. 
If it were not for Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we would be totally blinded and we would be unimpressed by such infinite riches and wisdom and knowledge. But this is why Jesus came. This is what Christmas is about. Jesus came to display the glory of God and to die in the place of those who have scorned that glory. In Jesus is the only way we can know and enjoy the infinitely deep wonders of this awesome and holy God. And so turn from your sin this morning. Turn from your sin right now and turn to Jesus, the only Savior. And in this gospel, be amazed, be dumbfounded, be in awe and give God the glory that He alone deserves. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. As we move to the Lord's table, Let's allow the glory of God in the gospel to drive us to repentance and faith in Jesus. Our holy Savior laid down His life for an unholy people like us. And so with reverence and joy this morning, we proclaim the dying love of Jesus Christ. Invite the music team to go ahead and come up. The deacons who are going to serve us, go ahead and make your way up here. And let me say this, and this is really, really important right now. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you're not seeking to live your life for His glory in the context of the church, then please do not partake of these elements. The Apostle Paul would say in the book of 1 Corinthians that if we partake in an unworthy manner, we are guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. But if you are trusting in Jesus if you're following Him in the context of His people, then we invite you to partake and to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As the elements are being passed out, we're going to sing a song and take this time to examine yourself. Take this time to consider whether you love this glorious God. Is the glory of God your highest delight? Evaluate yourself as we sing this song.